If you would this morning, in the time that remains, I want you to just grab your Bibles and kind of have them ready. We're going to uh, we're going to be a little bit different this morning in what we're doing. I, I I'd actually like for you to start in Matthew chapter thirteen, Matthew chapter thirteen, and we're just going to do a little Bible study today. This is going to be a uh, a message that uh, we're, we're going to use a lot of Bible today. I don't apologize for that. Uh, I think we need to today. So Matthew chapter 13, while you're turning there, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and we'll get into this morning's message. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege in this country still to open it. We think, Father, of our brother in Iran this morning, if, if he's still with us on this earth, who faces death for his profession of faith in you, and yet here we are in America today with Bibles on our laps and freedom to worship and Lord, forgive us that we take it for granted, and thank you that we have it today. I pray now as we turn our attention to this book, to this wonderful book that is the inspired, inerrant, holy, perfect word of God, that you would teach us. Fill me with your spirit. Help me with this topic. Help me, Lord, to be focused. Help me to be kind. Help me, Lord God, to be uh, protected from saying anything that I ought not to. And help me, Lord, to say only what you have said. Speak to us today, Lord. This is your time. And I pray not only that you would speak, but, Father, that we would hear. I pray that you would open the ears of all these, your people, uh, whether they're saved or lost, whether they're here today just seeking, or whether they're people who have been in the kingdom for a long time. I pray that all of us today would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, and listen to what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read a little bit of scripture, starting in verse number 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. 
For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. I want to ask you a question this morning. This is a rhetorical question, so I don't want anybody shouting out an answer. Just be thinking about this to yourself. What do you think that passage is teaching us today? What do you think it's teaching us? There's a lot of things I'm sure you could say. There's one particular truth I want us to notice from that passage. What do you think it might be? Let's read a little further. Let's read another parable, starting in verse 24. And as I read this parable, think about the last parable and try to compare them in your mind and ask yourself, what are they both teaching us? The same truth. Verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Do you see a similarity between those two passages? What are they teaching us this morning? couple more, I'll just read these passages to you. You don't have to turn here. First John chapter 2 and verses 18 and 19 says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. One more verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. If you endure chastening... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Four passages. Do you see any similarities between them? Is there one common thought process that comes to your mind? I would suggest that there is, at least in my mind, and it is this. The common thread. A person can look saved and not be saved. A person can look saved and not be saved. In the parable of the sower and the soils, at one point, all four looked saved. Did they not? But the fact is, only one was. In the parable of the tares amongst the wheat, the entire point of the parable is that there will be those who only, uh, they, they look like believers. They look exactly like believers. And only the Lord knows the difference. And until the end of time, uh, they will be amongst us living amongst true believers until Jesus comes again. Oh, I forgot to read one other passage of Scripture that I don't have in my notes here. Uh, Rats. I wonder where I put it. Oh, it's Matthew chapter 26. There it is. Let's flip over to that. I did want you to see this one. This one's key. Matthew 26. Our greatest example. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 17. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. 
So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. And so I I almost forgot that passage, but that's the most important one, perhaps, because here we have a perfect example of a man who fooled everybody, a man who looked saved to everybody in the room. Not a single one of those disciples, at least as far as the biblical narrative is concerned, uh, said, you know, I wonder about that Jews guy. Not a one of them. Not a one of them. Every one of them thought, nobody else here could possibly be it. It must be me. Amazing. That he could look so saved and be so lost. And in the passages we read from 1 John and Hebrews, both plainly teach that there are both true and false professions of faith and they have corresponding evidence either way. And so the common thread in all these passages, and I know I've jumped around, I, I hope I haven't gotten too uh, out there with this. I, I hope you, you're, you're with me. The common thread in all of these is a person can look saved and not actually be saved. Last Lord's Day, we were in our digging deeper uh, discussion, and we considered some thoughts from our statement of faith, and we considered some thoughts based on salvation. And we spoke from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. We talked about the fact that salvation is a gift. It's freely given by God, our gracious God, to all who trust in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that. We learned the basis, therefore, of some thoughts from our statement of faith. And, and these are the ones we were looking at last week. We believe in the substitutionary death of Christ and in his literal bodily resurrection from the dead. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in the finished redemptive work of Christ alone. And that no works of man, however good, need to be or can be added for salvation. Evidence of salvation appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. We believe in the eternal salvation of all who put their faith in Christ, that all who are truly born again are kept secure by God, the Father. We learned, therefore, last week, or I hope we learned, about salvation and about the parallel doctrine. I actually think these are the same exact doctrine, but of eternal security. We tend to call that two different things. I think it's the same thing. We learned about salvation. We learned about eternal security. We learned that once a person is saved, they can never be lost. That is our firm belief here at Friendship Bible Church because that is the plain teaching of the Bible. Once a person is saved, they can never be saved. Or they can never be lost, I mean. But anytime we talk about eternal security, anytime questions begin to come up and Issues begin to arise. This week was no exception. It all started, actually started a couple of weeks ago in our men's Bible study. In our men's Bible study, a question came up. I believe Brother Phil asked this question, trying to stir the pot a little bit, I'm sure. But uh, he asked the question, so uh, if a person is uh, makes a profession of faith and there is no evidence whatsoever in their life, they, they maintain the same old habits and the same old issues and the same sins and all that kind of stuff, nothing ever changes in their life whatsoever, do we say that they are saved? Wasn't that your question, brother, something like that? And so I've been thinking about that particular question. And then this week after we talked about eternal security last Sunday, uh, somebody approached me and said they had some questions about that. and I'm sure they were not the only one whatsoever. And on top of all that, throughout this past week, the Holy Spirit has just been beating me to death because I skipped one little line in our statement of faith 
that I know I shouldn't have skipped. I know I should have talked about it, but I just skipped it. And so the Holy Spirit has been saying, you know what, you got unfinished business. you got to go back and you got to talk about this. And so I know that we're supposed to be in Nehemiah this morning, and I know that all of you came here today just just thrilled to death with the idea of being in Nehemiah, didn't you? You've probably read ahead and you're all excited, you're ready to go, but we're not in Nehemiah this morning. We are going to finish what we started last week, because I don't ever want us to get so tied up with our methodology that we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is saying, somebody needs to get this straight, then we're going to talk about that this morning. And so we're digging deeper again today in salvation. We're digging deeper and we're going we're gonna to look at one little statement that I ignored last week. And, and perhaps you caught that as I read it today. I've read it every time. I just never talked about it. Here's the, here's the whole statement. See if you see the part I missed. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in the finished redemptive work of Christ alone and that no works of man, however good, need to be or can be added for salvation. Evidence of salvation appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. What part did I not talk about last week? Evidence of salvation appears. In the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. That phrase, evidence of salvation appears, is where all of the questions revolve around. And so let's talk about this this morning. Just for a few minutes, I'm, I'm already out of time, and I've not even got to my first point. But this, this will be short this morning. I just want to talk about two things. Number one, what we learned about salvation and eternal security last week. And number two, what I neglected to tell you. Those are our two points for today. So first of all, what did we learn about salvation and eternal security last week? I'm going to give you a bunch of verses, but I'm not going to read them for the most part. Uh, you can just jot them down or get the audio later and look it up on your own, because we talked about them last week. But here's what we learned. We learned that the Bible says we can know we are saved. First John chapter 5 and verse 13, these things are written that you may know. We can know that we are saved. We learned that salvation results from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we could quote verse after verse for that. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 John chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. We could go to John chapter 19 and verse 30 where Jesus himself sat on the cross to tell us that it is finished. It is finished. And so we learned that we are saved. Salvation results from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We learned that salvation is a gift entirely by grace. It cannot be earned. Our text was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift entirely by grace. It cannot be earned. Other verses we could look at there are Titus chapter 3, Romans chapter 11. We learned that salvation is a present possession of the believer. John chapter 5 and verse 24 says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. We learn that Jesus not only saves, he also keeps. We don't keep ourselves saved. He keeps us saved. Second Timothy chapter one, verse number 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him. Until that day. And so we learn that salvation is a gift given entirely and only because of God's love and grace. We learn that salvation is not something that we can earn. We learn that it is free. It is a gift. And once God gives the gift, he will never take it away. To be saved is to be eternally saved. To be eternally saved is to be eternally secure. That's what we talked about last week. But here's what I neglected to talk about last week about eternal security and salvation. You see, the fact is there are some objections that always arise. Perhaps they've arisen 
in your mind when we think about this particular thing. And I, I understand these objections. They're common objections. They're the same objections that come up all the time. And the reason I understand them personally is because they used to be my objections. I used to think the same way. I used to have the same questions. Let's see if I can articulate a couple of them. One question that always comes up when we talk about this matter of eternal security is this. Well, okay, preacher, I understand that I'm saved, but what if I sin? What if I sin? I've had people say it to me this way. I can understand that the blood of Christ cleansed me of my past sin. And by that, the person means before, before I trusted Christ. I can understand that the blood of Christ cleansed me from that. But what about sin that occurs after salvation? Won't I be just for that? And a lot of people struggle with that. And the fact is, if you, if you struggle with that objection, you really need to go to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. And you need to memorize that verse. That's one of those verses that ought to be in your mind, especially if you're struggling with this issue. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Memorize it. Memorize it. Quote it over and over and over and over and over in your mind to yourself. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then once you've got that verse firmly in your head, you need to flip back one chapter to Romans chapter 7 and read Paul's personal testimony. And you'll see there the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I am such a sinner. Now, Paul wasn't writing this before the Damascus Road. He was writing this well on in his Christian walk. He was writing this when he had planted churches, when he was a tremendous preacher of the gospel and had reached much of the known world for Christ. And he said, I am such a sinner. He said, there are things in my life that I know shouldn't be there, but are there. I can't get away from them. He said, I am totally enslaved. That's what Paul said. You see, here's the, here's the deal, friends. If, if only people who never sin after they have been saved are going to be in heaven. There ain't going to be anybody in heaven. Because none of us, including the Apostle Paul, are going to be there. So Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Even Paul struggled with sin. You need to remember that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross just for those sins which you were going to commit up until the time you trusted in him. He died for all of your sins. When Jesus died on the cross and uttered those wonderful words, it is finished about my sin. I hadn't committed a single one of them yet. And so every single one of them was future. There is no such dividing line anywhere in the Bible about sins committed before or sins committed after. All of them were forgiven on the cross. And so, it doesn't matter whether we sin. We need to understand the timing of salvation. It's a present possession, not merely a future one. I read that verse, John chapter 5 and verse number 24. We need to memorize that verse. John chapter 5 and verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The first time I heard that, first time I heard it spoken of related to eternal security was by Dr. Curtis Hudson. I remember him preaching a sermon using that verse. And as he described it, the way I have described it to you, that it describes the fact that salvation is not something we'll have someday. It's something we have now. It's not something we'll have when we get to heaven. It's something we have the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a present possession. And as he described that and read that verse over and over, it's like a bell went off in my head. It's like a light went off. And I suddenly realized, because I didn't believe it before. I didn't understand it. I thought the same thing. Wait a minute. How can I possibly go to heaven if after I've trusted Christ I commit some sin? How can it be? But it's like this light went off. Wait a minute. 
The Bible says I'm saved. The Bible says I'm saved eternally. It's a present possession. And so if you struggle with those things, think about those verses, would you? Get them in your brain. Write them down. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. John chapter 5, verse 24. Quote them over and over, over to yourself. Write them on a little piece of paper. Stick them on the rearview mirror of your car or on your refrigerator or someplace until that light goes off in your brain. It will. It will. There's another objection that oftentimes comes up about this matter of eternal security. Maybe this one's a little bit more serious. I don't know. Some people will say, well, what about the guy? And this is kind of Phil's question here. What about the guy who claims to be saved and then turns away completely? Or who claims to be saved and shows absolutely no change in their life at all? What about that person? Not talking about ourselves now. We're looking at some other person who names the name of Christ and we say, wait a minute, what, what about that? That, can't, that person? He says he's saved? That person? Some people might say it like this. What you're saying then, preacher, is that a person can trust Christ at a certain time in his or her life and then subsequently abandon that belief and still go to heaven. We've probably all come across people like that in our life. Yeah, I, I walked the aisle when I was in third grade. What have you done since then? Nothing. When's the last time you were in church? I don't even remember. Absolutely no evidence whatsoever in their life. And basically, not even, even speaking like they believe it anymore. Is that person eternally secure? Some people might say it like this. What you're saying then is that a person can be a Christian and live entirely like the lost world. No evidence of salvation being present in their life until the day they die and still go to heaven. Are you saying, preacher, that that person is eternally secure? And my answer to you is no, I am not. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches at all. You see, I think there's two primary answers to those objections. Let me just share them. There may be others. But two explanations for the person who quote-unquote believes and then later on turns away completely. Or the person who quote-unquote believes and then lives like the devil the rest of their life. No evidence. No change whatsoever. One, obviously, is the fact that he was just simply never saved in the first place. Never saved in the first place. Now think of the verses we read at the beginning. Would that not be the explanation of Matthew chapter 13? Matthew chapter 13 where four people initially looked saved. But only one was. Some were not saved in the first place, even though they gave an initial evidence of it. Would that not be the explanation of Judas? Judas, who demonstrated that it is possible to fool everybody on the face of the earth except God, and still not be saved. Would that not be the explanation of Judas? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan can make himself look mighty good. If Satan walked in the back door back there, he'd look like a preacher. He'd look like a believer in every way, shape, or form. It's possible to look saved and not be saved. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 19, isn't that what it clearly says? They went out from us, but they were not of us. Isn't that what it says? They were here. They, were here. they made a profession. And then they turned away and walked away. And why did they do it? Because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They were never saved. So there's one explanation. Not saved in the first place. And the other explanation is a person can be saved, but just plainly rebelling against God. A person can be saved and be rebelling against God. Some people like to use the term backslidden to refer to this particular thing. I don't know if that's a good term or not. 
I remember a particular time in my life. I'll share a little bit of testimony. You guys probably look at me and say, well, he's the pastor. He's a good guy. But the fact is, if you could look into my heart, you would know that I'm as rotten a sinner as anybody on the face of the earth. And there have been many times in my life and in my past that I haven't been what I should have been. And I remember one particular time we had, we had been here. Beth and I were married. We had been at this church, and we had decided to leave this church. It's been so long now, I can't even totally remember all the issues as to why we decided to leave. I'm just going to say that God was leading us away. And we went to another little church over in Brimfield. It was called Tree City Baptist Church. Gary Price was the pastor. You remember Gary Price. And we just loved that church. We got all involved in that church. It wasn't long before I was a deacon there, and I was leading their choir, and we were all involved. But then, as happens sometimes, things came up in my life, and and I don't even remember what they were now. I just remember that I got away from God, and I got out of church. I just remember that was the case. I don't remember what was going on with us. I don't remember where we were at at that time. I just remember I got away from God. And uh, went on for a little period of time where I just wasn't there. And I couldn't take it. I just couldn't take it. The, the Lord beat on me. The Holy Spirit beat on me. I couldn't take it. And so finally one day I picked up the phone and I called Gary Price and I said, I need to talk to you. And he said, well, I'm here. In his West Virginia accent, I'm here. Come on down. And so I went down and I sat across the table or the desk for Gary Price. He was sitting at his, at his desk. I could still I could picture every, everything about him that day. I could see right where his Bible was laying. I could remember everything. And he had his elbows on the desk and he was leaning across. And I'm sitting there slumped in the chair on the other side of the desk. And uh, just look at all will be God, I'm sure. And he said to me, what are you doing here, Bill? What are you doing? And I said, I'll never forget what I said. It was so simple. I said, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, well, I know. He said, you're backslid. Nobody can be out of church as long as you've been out of church and not be backslid. And, you know, I'm telling you, that was like a knife went through my chest. It, it just, it hurt. It was like, it was like God himself, the Holy Spirit, was telling me that is absolutely what it was. And so I know what it means to be in this state. But I also know this. I know that no true believer can be in that state without consequences. You cannot be there. You can't just decide that you're going to walk away from God and live a life of sin without consequences. If you're saved, you've got the same Holy Spirit in you that beat me to death, and He will beat you to death. He will not let you go. He will not let you do that without consequence in your life. I think the Bible is clear that if you can, there's something very, 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 very wrong with your experience. The Bible says God chastens His children. And it even, it's even more clear than that. It says if you, there is no chastening, if you're not experiencing that, if you can sin with impunity, then you are almost certainly not saved. You're almost certainly not a believer. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Chastening. Spanking. You ever experienced the spanking of God? Hebrews chapter 12, we read it a minute ago. I'll read it one more time and then we're done. It says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And so the answer to the objection is simply this. Either the person was never saved in the first place, that person who claims that they were trusted Christ at one time in their life, but there's no evidence, nothing. No change. 
Same habits, same issues grip them today that always have. No growth. They can walk away from God at any time. They can stay away from God's people and God's church with impunity and there never seems to be anything. The answer is, number one, either they were never saved or number two, they're saved and away from God and he is working in their life right now. If he isn't working in their life, then if I'm reading my Bible right, they're not saved. So consider that portion of our statement of faith which I neglected to touch on last week. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith in the finished redemptive work of Christ alone, and that no works of man, however good, need to be or can be added for salvation. But evidence of salvation appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Evidence of salvation. Consider that the Bible clearly teaches that a person who is truly saved can never be lost. I believe that with all my heart. Once truly saved, though, there will be evidence of it. And so consider that the Bible clearly teaches that a person can look saved and not really be saved. I hope that as you think about these things, and I know I, I, I went kind of fast through that because I didn't have any time, but I hope as you think about these things, one of two things will take place in your life. If, if you are a believer this morning, I hope this helps you with those objections. And I hope that all of us can rejoice in the glorious truth that when we got saved, we got it forever. And it can never be taken away. It's a gift of God, and it's ours, ours forever. But another thing that might happen here is I hope you'll take a good hard look at your own profession. Can you sin? Can you live like everybody else on your street, everybody else that you work with, everybody else that you come into contact with every day and, and, and live no different? No, if, if they were to, we were to line you up with all of the lost world right here, could anybody pick you out? Is there any difference at all in your life? And if the answer to that is no then we have to ask a question. Was it ever real? Did you ever really do it? Did you ever really trust Christ? Because I am convinced the more I read the Bible, and I do read it once in a while, the more I read the Bible, I'm convinced that if you were saved, there will be evidence. We believe evidence of salvation appears. That's what the Bible teaches. And so I ask this morning, does it appear in you? Father, thank you so much for the word. Lord, I have no idea. Lord, how this has come out. It sounded to me like complete confusion. I hope, I hope that the Holy Spirit is able to take these things. And I know he is able, but I hope he will. Take these thoughts and apply them when they need to be applied. Lord, I, I don't know. I know that most people in this church here this morning uh, have made a profession of faith or at least have indicated so. But I pray for right now, Father, every one of us, from myself down to everybody, Lord, we would just examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Thank you so much for salvation, the wonderful gift that it is. Thank you, Lord, that once we have it, it's ours forever. But help us to not be just professors without being possessors. Help us, Lord, to not just look saved. Help us to be saved. I pray if there are any today who are wondering about that, who just need to nail that down, I pray that today they'd know there is no shame in stepping out and saying, I just want to be sure. I just want to be sure and let someone pray with them from the Bible. And Lord, there may be others here today who are saved, who absolutely know that without a shadow of a doubt, but just need to spend some time praising and thanking you for the gift. And maybe sometimes we forget how wonderful it is. Speak to the hearts of these, your people, whatever their needs might be, whether it's baptism or membership or 
or just a prayer or whatever, Lord, as we go to the invitation right now, you work. You work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.